It was from a small, lonely Roman prison cell that the Apostle Paul would write his final letter ever. One that John Calvin claimed was written not merely in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. And this letter, Paul's final letter, not only to Timothy, but the final contribution of his to our New Testament canon is the book that we are now transitioning into this morning. It is what we have come to call throughout church history as Second Timothy. If you would please open your Bibles to Paul's second epistle to Timothy. While you're tur- turning there, I just warn you that today's sermon is going to be a, a lot different than what we're sort of used to seeing. Um, typically, we try to preach expository sermon, um, which is known as verse by verse, book by book. Um, today's not going to be verse by verse. And the reason is because as we're starting this new book, I, I want us to get an overall feel for the, the, the context and the themes and the overall purpose of the book before we start breaking it down chunk by chunk, uh, verse by verse. So it's still going to be a biblical sermon. This is still not going to be my opinions or my ramblings. We're actually, as a matter of fact, going to be bouncing all over this book. Uh, there will be a lot of Bible in this. So this is still going to be God's word. Uh, and, and we're still going to wrap it up into a point for all of us to apply to our lives and take home with us. Um, but it's going to be a little bit of a different feel. We're going to kind of be bouncing around and looking at the famous journalism questions of any story. The who, what, when, where, and why. The who, what, when, where, and why. And we're going to focus most of our time and most of our attention on the why. Uh, but I want us to begin with the who. Who. Who is involved in this letter? Who's the author? Who's the recipient? Well, as we already talked about, this is written by Paul. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, this is a fairly standard introduction to this book, um, both verses 1 and 2, although he does tweak them uh, in an interesting way more so than he does a lot of his other introductions. So there are unique elements to this introduction. But for the most part, this is fairly standard of Paul. This is how Paul begins his letters, by identifying himself and also identifying his authority. Who is Paul? Well, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, reminding us that this is Christ's words. These are Christ's messages. This is the Lord Jesus's words ultimately to Timothy because the Apostle Paul was given that authority by Christ himself. As he says, why was Paul an apostle? Is it because he was such a smart guy? Is it because he was such a good guy? Well, no. If you read Paul's literature, he definitely would not have you believe that. Paul was very clear. I was the worst of all the sinners. Uh, I, I was the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all the apostles. These are, these are everything that Paul said. But Paul is ultimately an apostle because the will of God. It is God who appointed him to this task. It is God who made him and equipped him for this task. And I think as we're going to get into one of our themes being that there's some continued false teaching in the church, I think Paul also probably threw this in to remind Timothy of who he should be listening to. As his authority is questioned throughout the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians, the, almost that entire book is dedicated to people who have come in and questioned Paul's authority, questioned Paul's motive. So Paul is sort of starting us off right from the get-go by reminding us, I've got the authority here. All right, listen to me. So we know that this was written by an apostle. It was written by Paul, and he is an apostle by the will of God. And the reason he was an apostle is that this was all according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. His purpose as an apostle is ultimately to bring people to the gospel and to open up our eyes to the life that we can find in Christ Jesus. So we have the apostle Paul writing this epistle. And then in verse 2, we not only get our recipient, we not only get the second who, but we learn something more about the apostle Paul as well. Who is this written to? Well, verse 2, it's written to Timothy, which we've already covered and know about Timothy as we just got done looking at the first epistle written to Timothy. So this is written to Timothy, but then Paul qualifies it, my beloved child. Now we're going to briefly talk just a little bit more about that little statement in a little bit. Uh, the significance of that. But obviously, Timothy and Paul, what we can say here for our, our who, have an intimate spiritual relationship. We know that Timothy was not Paul's biological child. So Paul here is clearly talking about some kind of spiritual family. 
Paul considers himself sort of a spiritual father to Timothy. Paul is the one who likely brought Timothy to the Christian faith. Paul is the one who nurtured and taught Timothy as they were traveling companions. So Paul had a very fatherly relationship to Timothy. And I'm sure that many people in this room can attest to the joys and the wonders of having unbelievers come to the faith through your testimony, through your gospel presentation, through your life. I'm sure some people in this room have had the chance to disciple new believers and and have experienced the joy and the pleasure of helping a new Christian grow and learn and walk in the Lord. It truly is a blessed thing. And this is something that Paul and Timothy had. They had a very unique personal relationship. You can read through the book of Acts and, and their relationship, even though it's not given in a whole lot of detail, the little bits that we get are really moving. Paul loved Timothy. He loved this man. He, and he saw himself, and Timothy recognized Paul as a kind of authority, not just because he's my apostle, but also because he's basically my dad. He's my spiritual dad. So we see Paul begins not only by establishing his authority, but also by establishing his fatherly pastoral tenderness. But again, we we will just briefly look at that again. But we see that this was written by Paul, and it was written to Timothy. But as every book in the New Testament is, we know that even though it had Timothy as its direct recipient, as a matter of fact, 2 Timothy is far more personal than 1 Timothy. We're going to see 1 Timothy is very clearly, as you walk through the book, sort of a church manual. It was written to Timothy, but it very much had the whole church in mind, just in the way it was written. But 2 Timothy is extremely personal. It, it reads and feels much more like a personal letter than a church letter. But we know that it still is ultimately intended to be for the church and not just for Timothy. And here's how we know. Turn to the very last verse in the book. Chapter 4, verse 22. Chapter 4, verse 22. This is how Paul concludes the letter. He says, the Lord be with your spirit, which is singular, so he wants the spirit to be with or he wants the Lord to be with Timothy's spirit. But then he concludes by saying, grace be with you. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Your bio, some of your, if you have a different translation than I do, it may even say, grace be with you all, because the you there switches in the Greek to a plural. So he's not saying, grace be with you, Timothy. He's saying, grace be with you, everyone. So clearly, Paul had in mind that this letter was ultimately going to not just be for Timothy, but for the church. That's why he concludes it by saying, grace to all of you. Well, who's the all of you? It was written to Timothy. But Paul expects that this was written to a pastor. Not just to Timothy, it was written to a pastor. And this pastor was going to bring it to the church. And so I would remind you, as I tried to remind us of at least a couple times as we were going through 1 Timothy, that while this book is called pastoral and a pastoral epistle, it's a pastor writing to a pastor about pastoral elements, Paul had the church in mind. So do not think that for one second, if you're not a pastor or you're not an aspiring pastor, that this isn't a book for you. Paul wrote this with the whole church in mind. Timothy, the direct recipient But Paul expected the whole church to hear this, and he concluded by wishing grace to be with everyone. So that's sort of our who. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy and the church in Ephesus at large. We already know the what. It's an epistle. It's in a letter. This is not prophetic writing. Uh, This is not poetry. This is not wisdom literature. This is an epistle. This is a direct letter from Paul. It it contains what we call didactic, uh, a didactic element, which just means teaching. This is, this is Paul sort of teaching us um, very, in a very straightforward way as the epistles tend to run. So let's move then to our where. We've got our who, we've got our what. So what about our where? Well, as I also said in the introduction, Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and we know that from the letter itself. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Paul tells Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. So not only do we know Paul's in prison as a prisoner, but we know he he tells us why he's there. It's for the Lord. Paul didn't break some random civil law. 
This wasn't coincidental to his apostolic ministry. He's in prison because of his apostolic ministry. He is in prison. He is the Lord's prisoner, as he tells us. We see this again in chapter 1, later on in verses 16 and 17. Or just look at, oh yeah, yeah, both 16 and 17. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So Paul's not only in prison, but we know this is not like house arrest, which is a kind of prison he's experienced before. He's not under house arrest. He's enchained. He's shackled. And he's thankful. He's worried that Timothy is going to be embarrassed about him not want to accept his authority because Paul's a criminal. That's what Paul's adversaries, his enemies, would want to use against him. Why are you following Paul? You realize he's an enemy of the state, right? Oh, you're a great leader, you're a heroic, godly man who's supposed to be transforming the world and the the guy that's in prison, shackled in prison. They wanted to use it. And Paul's saying, Timothy, don't be embarrassed of me, even though I'm a prisoner. And he says, Onesiphorus, we ought to commend him because he was not ashamed of the fact that I'm in jail. But we see clearly Paul was in jail. And then verse 17 tells us something even further. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So he's in prisoner in Rome. He's shackled, chained, prisoner in Rome because of the gospel. And then it says he searched for me earnestly and found me. It's because of these details that many people believe Paul was being held in in famous Roman prison known as the Mamertine prison. The Mamertine prison was an underground dungeon. Your cell was a small hole in the ground with a ceiling that had nothing but a hole in the roof so that you could have sunlight and food given to you. So he's enchained in a basement. And the thing about these is they were very obscure and difficult to find. When Paul was under house arrest, it would have been very easy to find. He could have sent, you know, messengers and people knew where he was. It was easy to find him. But if anyone wanted to visit Paul in the Mamertine prison, it was going to take some work. And Onesiphorus was so excited and so unashamed of Paul, he was willing to go to Rome and search diligently and try to find this man who had been thrown in a dungeon somewhere underground. So where... It's fair to say, pretty miserable conditions. Paul's not writing this from a good place. He's not writing this from a fun place. Again, just to really drive it home, look at chapter 2, verse 9. Or we'll just begin in verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as I preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I'm excited to preach that passage. But again, the point that we're going to focus on here is Paul is clearly in prison, in Rome, shackled in chains, and it's because of the gospel. And then just look brief with me in chapter 4, verse 16. This is also an important element that we will get to. Chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may not be charged against them. So not only is Paul in prison, but we know he's already had at least one court hearing. He's already stood before some kind of Roman civil magistrate and had to give a defense for something because he says here, when I did that, I was alone. None of you came to help me. None of you came to stand by me. I was alone at my first defense. So Paul's in trouble. Things are not good for Paul as he writes this final letter. And we will see that more so here in a minute. So who? Paul to Timothy. What? An epistle. Where? From Rome, from prison in Rome to Ephesus where Timothy was continuing to pastor his church. Now, when was this written? Uh, We generally know the dates, although there's a little bit of discrepancy among believing Christians as to exactly when this was written. I I fall into the camp, I think this was written during what some call Paul's fourth missionary journey. Now that might sound bizarre to you. Typically we're only accustomed to talking about Paul's three missionary journeys, and that's because the book of Acts only has three of Paul's different missionary journeys for us. If you read through Acts, there's only three. Um, But I tend to agree with with some people that Paul actually went on a fourth one. So the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison. And so some people put 
this letter during that imprisonment, and it's very possible. I'm not trying to push something dogmatically. Very possible. But a lot say that the evidence doesn't seem to actually support that because the prison, the Roman prison that Paul was in there was not like chains and shackles and dungeons. It was more like house arrest. So this seems to be a different Roman imprisonment, at least from my perspective. So that's why there's a belief that Paul got out of that first imprisonment, went back, and that's when some of, he started writing some of his letters and then was imprisoned again. That's what I take. So I call it his fourth missionary journey. You are not bound to believe that. You can fit it into the book of Acts if you would like and you think it fits comfortably. But probably more important to us, rather than on which particular missionary journey, is the specific date. Uh, Paul wrote this letter sometime between the years 64 and 68 AD. And the reason that's important is because that's at the tail end of Emperor Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus. In short, Emperor Nero was in control of Rome while Paul wrote this letter. And this will be uh, very, very important in a minute, who Nero is and why that's so important. But Nero reigned in Rome from 54 AD to 68 when he committed suicide. So this would have been right at the tail end of Nero's reign. So that's our when, our who, what, why, or who, what, and when. I want us now to look at the why. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Why did Paul write 2 Timothy? What's, what's the ultimate purpose of 2 Timothy? Well, I've got basically six major reasons, and one of them will break up quite a bit. And, and the first two are pretty pragmatic and simplistic, if you will. The first reason he wrote this is because he's lonely. And I don't say that condescendingly. Remember where he is. He's lonely. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 4. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul misses Timothy. He misses him. He remembers their struggles together. He remembers their missionary journeys together. And he knows that if he could just see Timothy one more time, he would be filled with joy. Paul's lonely. But more than that, look at chapter 4, verse 9. We, we briefly read part of this already. Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. So not only does Paul long for Timothy, but he's writing this letter because he, he, wants, he doesn't want this just to be a longing. He wants it to be fulfilled. I want you to come see me. I know it's difficult. I know it's a long journey. I know you're busy. But we need to try to orchestrate this. I want you to come see me. Now, why? Well, we already saw because he misses him. But it's deeper than that. Look at verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with at Carpus at Trous. Also the books and above all the parchments. So we see Paul's alone. I mean, with exception of Luke, and thank God for Luke. And I don't say that in the flippant kind of blasphemous way. I mean, literally, thank God for Luke. But Paul's lonely. Some of his companions have not deserted him, but for ministerial reasons, he has had to send them away. And others, like Demas, have straight up left the faith. They've abandoned him. So here Paul is in prison... Some of his companions have deserted the Christian faith. The others have been sent away. He's with need. He misses Timothy, and he's lonely. Look at verses 20 and 21 of the last chapter. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Why did he say that? Well, there's... Two potential reasons. One of them is he's cold. Remember, earlier we read, he asked, one of the things he asked Timothy to bring was he asked him to bring companions, he asked him to bring books, and he said, by the way, I had a, I had a big comfy coat that I left with Carpus. I forgot it. And winter's coming, and this dungeon is cold. Paul's not in a good place. But as we're going to see in a minute, I think Paul's also hurrying him before winter because I think Paul knows he's going to die in the winter. But we'll wait for that. 
We see the first reason Paul wrote the letters, he's lonely and he wants Timothy to meet him. And we don't know if Timothy ever did. The history suggests he probably didn't. We also know, getting to the point that I sort of left on a cliffhanger, that Paul also wrote this as somewhat of a farewell address. We said this was Paul's last letter, and I think Paul anticipated that. Paul knew he was going to die soon. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul is saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I am about to offer my life as a sacrifice for the gospel. My time of departure has come. And then he speaks of his Christian life in the past tense. He doesn't say, I am running the race. I am fighting the fight, although he, he was. But he's trying to tell us something here. He, he considers his life over. I'm, I'm going to be poured out. And we know Paul has a good sense of this because in the book of Philippians, Paul writes that from prison as well. But Paul tells the Philippians, although honestly I wouldn't mind dying to be with the Lord. He actually says that. He says, to be honest, I would love to just be set free from this body and just go be with the Lord. But he says, I know that the Lord will deliver me from this because you still have need of me. So Paul had a pretty keen awareness from the Spirit whether he was going to make it or not. So we can kind of trust his instincts. And here Paul instinctually believes he's not going to make it. And that brings us back to Nero. We don't have biblical evidence of what happened at the end of Paul's life, but we have very strong historical evidence. And Paul was, in fact, beheaded and killed during his time of this imprisonment. Paul did not make it out. He died. He was martyred. He was martyred under Nero, who, uh, although I'm going to open up a huge rabbit trail, you can ask me about this later, and I mean like way later, I believe Nero to be the beast of revelation. I believe Nero to be the worst persecutor of the Christian church that the world has ever known and the world will ever know. Nero treated Christians in unspeakable, horrific ways. As a matter of fact, I was tempted to actually list some of the things that Nero did historically, but I decided not to because in good conscience, I would have to ask your children to leave if I did that. That's the kind of grotesque, violent, evil, despicable nature of what Nero was doing to Christians in Rome. One of his victims was Paul. And honestly, Paul was beheaded. Compared to the other stories I've read, Paul had, that, was, that, was, that was pretty merciful. Paul got lucky. Paul got lucky. Paul is writing this at the end of his life, about to be persecuted for his faith. He's writing this to Christians who very likely have already begun to be persecuted by their faith. And as we're going to see in a minute, Paul anticipates it's only going to get worse. Paul wrote this as a farewell address. Paul knew he was hoping to see Timothy again, but he knew he would never see this church again. This was Paul's goodbye letter. He wrote a goodbye. But this brings us into less practical reasons and more of the thematic reasons for why Paul wrote this letter. And many of these themes we've already seen in 1 Timothy and many of them are common in Titus as well. And one of the first things we see is this theme of godliness. Timothy and his church being God, a godly pastor and godly church members is very important to Paul. We saw this emphasis on godliness in 1 Timothy. It comes up again. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Speaking of Timothy's church, Paul tells them in verse 14 of chapter 2, remind them... Of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. 
Much of what we just read in that text, we've read word for word already in 1 Timothy when he was talking about some of the false teachers. Again, we see this stress that Timothy be godly. Look at, in the same chapter, look at verses 22 and 23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. Again, this is almost word for word from 1 Timothy. We see this constant theme about avoiding foolish controversies, avoiding foolish debate, fleeing sin, fleeing youthful passions, and pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness. Godliness is a theme of 2 Timothy in all the pastoral epistles. And there are other verses that we could look at, but I want us to move to our next theme, which directly relates to ungodliness, which is false teachers. Timothy is just like he was in the first letter. He's still dealing with false teachers in his church. And so just as the ungodliness in 1 Timothy was so constantly linked to the false teachers and their behavior, the same is done to the false teachers here in 1 Timothy. For example, go back to chapter 1, verse 3. This is a more subtle bit that Paul throws in. The other ones will be more explicit if you're unconvinced. Paul says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Why did Paul throw that little bit in there? Why did he bring up his ancestors and this clear conscience thing? I think there's two reasons and one of them we'll look more at next week. But I think one of the primary reasons is because if you remember this early on in the church, the vast majority of uh, false teachers were from Jews. It was from Jewish worldviews and the Jewish faith. And one of the things that we see throughout the book of Acts and in Paul's epistles that he was constantly charged of, Paul was constantly charged of breaking and contradicting the Jewish faith. We see in the book of Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians that he was accused of overthrowing God's law and, and rejecting Moses. And he was accused of, of being against the Jewish faith. And, and I think that was likely going on with the false teachers here. I think that's why we see, for example, the, all this talk in First and Second Timothy, but especially in First Timothy, of genealogies. Remember in First Timothy chapter 1, the false teachers were obsessed with these genealogies. They're obsessed with their Jewish traditions and their ancestors. And in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers were trying to force the Christians to obey Jewish law. And it was all about connecting us back to Judaism. And Paul was seen as breaking us from Judaism. So Paul here sort of throws a subtle little jab at his accusers and reminds them, I worship the same God as my ancestors. I have not broken us from the Jewish revelation. I have continued the Jewish revelation. But if you're unconvinced by if that being its actual purpose, he gets much more explicit. Look at chapter 2, verse 16 through 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let every one who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We will come back to this for a couple of reasons, but again, we see Paul here wrote this because there are people that Paul and Timothy know, likely people in this church, who have abandoned the faith, and they're now doing what? They are upsetting the faith of some. We have people who are trying to deceive Timothy's church, and they're, they're, they're causing people to freak out. Well, what's true? I, I don't know what to believe here. Have you ever felt that? You hear a debate, and you hear even sometimes Christians, they debate this, and they throw out all these Bible verses. And this Christian, he debates this, and he throws out all these Bible verses. And we just think, what am I supposed to believe here? They both sound convincing. Your faith is getting upset. Is this even true? I can't figure this out. And that's the nature of these false teachers. They have come into Timothy's church after abandoning the church, and they are now upsetting the faith of these families. They are spreading false teaching. So Paul had to write this to help Timothy with that. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Well, let's just, let's just begin in verse 1. We'll see the ungodliness again, this theme of ungodliness and how it connects. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. We have an intentional assault upon Timothy's church. There are men, false teachers, who are trying to corrupt the faith of the families in there. They are trying to lead astray vulnerable women. This is a full-out assault of false teaching and false teachers. So Paul wrote this letter to help Timothy deal with these false teachers. But among the false teachers, we see, as we've already briefly touched, there's sort of a subcategory, which is Paul wrote this because of apostasy. What's apostasy? Apostasy comes from a Greek word which simply means to fall away. To apostatize is to fall away. Apostasy is whenever a person claims the Christian faith, walks in the Christian faith, and then and they do that openly, and then they turn from that, they fall away from that, and they now reject it. That's apostasy. If you've ever known someone who claimed to be a Christian and no longer does, they're an apostate. They've apostatized from the Christian faith. And we see this theme all throughout. We've already briefly covered it, but let's just look at some of them again. Again, chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So Paul is warning Timothy of coming common apostasy, that these are people who've been listening to the truth, they've been entertaining the truth, and it no longer impresses them. It's no longer exciting. It's no longer fresh. It's no longer new. They want something to tickle their ears. So they're going to go after and raise up false teachers so that they can start listening and following something else. This letter is a warning of a coming apostasy. This letter is helping Timothy not be so surprised when it happens. We're seeing a lot of apostasy in our social media day today as well right now. And here's what I say. Don't be so surprised. Be heartbroken. Be devastated. Be sad. We're not surprised. This isn't new. This is nothing to fret over. Paul warned Timothy of a coming apostasy, but Timothy was already dealing with apostasy. We saw that in 9 verse 10 as Demas had fallen away. We saw that back in chapter 1 with uh, uh, Figulus or however people pronounce the Greek. I'm probably butchering Greek words, but if you have an authority, you just let me know. Hermogenes and these different men who have fallen away from the truth and they're now teaching shameful things. Demas and these men, Timothy is dealing with apostasy and he's going to deal with further apostasy. And remember, the Christian faith is a new movement. How do I interpret this? How do I understand this? How do I approach this? You can imagine how important it would be to hear, listen, I know it's happened, it's going to keep happening, but you just stay the course. And that really brings us nicely into our six. We, we dealt with, the, Paul wrote this because he was lonely. He wrote this to say goodbye. He wrote this to encourage Timothy into godliness. He wrote this to encourage Timothy into true teaching. And he wrote this to warn him of apostasy. But the sixth reason, and I would argue, is the most important theme to the entire second letter to Timothy. The most important theme of this book. The main reason Paul wrote this book, in my opinion, is encouragement. Paul wrote this to encourage Timothy. And we're going to come back to this, but I want us just to really, before we look at the verses and why I get that, I want us to remember at how much Timothy needs it. If there's any Christian in any moment, in any time in the world who needs to be encouraged, it's Timothy right here, right now. Think about it for a moment. The Christian faith is brand new. I mean, obviously we argue theologically that's a bit inaccurate. It, it's an extension of Judaism. But from a cultural perspective, this is a brand new movement. And, and this Holy Spirit has done amazing things, don't get me wrong. I mean, Pentecost, 3,000 came. It, it's, 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 a, it's a growing movement. But if we were to look at 68 AD, 
From a global perspective, there's no Christians in what we now call North America. There's no Christians in what we now call South America. There's no Christians in Asia yet, because remember in Paul's missionary journey, he went up there and the Lord prevented him. So there's maybe some as word spread, but Asia has not been evangelized yet. What we commonly call Africa, Southern Africa at least, no Christians yet. The Eastern world is almost entirely unchristianized. The Western world is entirely unchristianized. If you look at it from a globe, Christianity exists in a tiny little circle in Israel, in Northern Africa, in in a little bit of, of Europe. It's a tiny movement. And guess what? Within that little circle of influence, the two major influences are the Jewish faith and Rome. And they hate Christianity, both of them. The Jews, if you read all throughout the, the, the book of Acts, it's not Rome persecuting Christians. It's Jews persecuting Christians. And remember, I'm not getting Pilate and I'm not getting the Romans off the hook for the crucifixion. The book of Acts blames them for the crucifixion. I'm not getting them off. But when Peter preaches to the Jews, he holds them accountable for the death of Jesus. He doesn't say Pilate killed him. He doesn't say Rome killed him. He said, you killed him. The Jews hate Jesus and they hate Christianity. And with Nero's continued and new assault, now Christianity is in a tiny little circle in the globe. It's a minority influence. And what was seeming like this huge boom is now being tempered by Jewish persecution, Roman persecution, apostasy, false teaching. And on, on top of all of that, Paul's in prison about to die and the other apostles are in Jerusalem and they're about to die. What hope does Timothy have? This thing doesn't have the legs. It's kaput. We've got no political influence. We've got no power. We've got no allies. Our apostles are about dead. Paul's nowhere to be found. False teaching has already corrupted his church. The faith of some have already been harmed. Some have already fallen away. Men are distorting the truth, leading away. He's being assaulted inside and outside with no apostolic help, no political help. This thing's kaput. It's done. It's over. And yet here we are. And yet 2019, Roswell, New Mexico... Here we are. Look at the encouragement constantly given to Timothy throughout this letter. Paul's not concerned. We begin, let's go back to chapter 1. First of all, let's begin again with verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child. Paul's not angry with Timothy's discouragement. You know what he doesn't say? How dare you, Timothy? Where's your faith? I expect more from the man of God. No, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father in Christ Jesus the Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that you may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am now sure dwells in you as well. You hear his pastoral tenderness? Paul's not upset. He's not angry. But he meets Timothy with gentleness and compassion. It's okay. I miss you. But then he moves into more direct, more direct encouragement. Look at what he says in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Remember, that's his pastoral ministry. We saw in 1 Timothy, the gift that was given to him when they laid hands on him was to be a pastor, and he needs to rekindle that flame. So what's Paul saying? Timothy wants to quit. Timothy's done with this pastor thing. And Paul's saying, no, don't let that fire die. Rekindle it. Why? What hope does Timothy have? Why should he rekindle this pastoral ministry? He's a young man. He's already overwhelmed with with being young and having a new job and Paul being gone and false teachers and apostasy and Rome and Jews. This is a young man overwhelmed, ready to quit. What, What does he have to stand on? What ground does Paul have to give him to have hope, encouragement? Look at what he says. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First encouragement he gives is the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll argue next week is the Holy Spirit. 
Don't forget about the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he, he continues this theme of, of, of the Lord being good and gracious to his children and keeping us together. Look at what he says in verse 11. The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. This is of chapter 1, verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. And now why is Paul not ashamed? Why, while he's in prison, about to die, he's hopeful, he's proud, he's encouraged. Why? For I know... For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What's Paul's hope? Christ cannot lose me. Christ cannot lose the gospel. He reminds Timothy of the power of the Spirit. He reminds Timothy of the power of Christ. The Spirit gives you power, not fear. And Christ will maintain the gospel, and Christ will maintain you. He continues this theme in chapter 2, verse 19. He just got done talking about false teaching, spreading, false teachers, spreading. They're upsetting people in the faith. That's discouraging, right? But then he immediately hits Timothy after reminding him of these difficult circumstances. He comes smack dab in verse 19 with his hope. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names on the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So what's Paul saying? Timothy, I get it. A lot of people are falling away from the faith. But what's he saying? They were never the Lord's to begin with. The Lord knows who are his, who are truly his. Those men were never truly his. And the Lord Jesus will not let who his people are go. We see the same thing with Elijah in the Old Testament. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 11. When Elijah's looking around and all the world seems to be over. There's no gospel to the Gentiles yet. The Gentiles are all pagans. And now even the Jews have turned against the prophets. The Jews are killing the prophets. And Elijah turns to God and says, I'm, I'm the only one left and they want to kill me too. And you know what God says? You're not the only one left. There are thousands that I have kept from bowing the knee to Baal. You are not the only one left. I've kept my people. He is constantly reminding Timothy of the power of God. Look again at chapter 3 verse 9. After listing all these, these false teachers and all that they're going to do and all that they're going to infiltrate and lead people away from the knowledge of the truth, what does Paul say in verse 9? But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as, those of those, as was of Jonas and, or, forgive me, Janus and Jambres. So Moses had false teachers too. And the ground swallowed them up. God killed them. So Paul says, listen, Timothy, I get it. There's a lot of false teachers, a lot of apostates. God's going to stop them. They're not going to get very far. Do you hear the encouragement? It's like every time he says something discouraging, he immediately brings in encouragement. Look at chapter 2, verse 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The whole gospel is about God's will triumphing in circumstances where it looked as if nothing good could triumph. That's the whole gospel. So remember that. And he says, this gospel which, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But what does it say? But the word of God is not bound. Rome can imprison as many Christians as they want. You can't put chains on the gospel. As a matter of fact, we see in some of all, Paul's other letters, Rome did this to their own destruction. Paul says, I am thankful that they've imprisoned me because it's now given me a direct shot to Rome's top people to preach the gospel to them. Rome has actually expediated the gospel with these chains. You can imprison Christians, you can kill Christians, you can stop Christians, but you cannot imprison the gospel, you cannot kill the gospel, you cannot stop the gospel. So Paul says, don't be afraid of these chains. They've imprisoned me, they've not imprisoned the gospel. What are you so down about? The gospel cannot be stopped. You can't bind it. God is always faithful. Verses, look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. me. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11. You, after, again, after talking about these false teachers who won't get very far, or, 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So what's Paul remind Timothy? Listen, even if I die in Rome, it's because God wanted it. Because I should have died a lot. Remember the Jews at one time in the book of Acts stoned Paul so badly they thought he was dead? He should have been dead, but the Lord rescued him. Paul is reminding Timothy that the Jews cannot thwart God's plan. Rome cannot, they cannot kill me and God's up in heaven going, dang it, I needed him. Ah, all right, plan B, who's plan B, who's plan B? If the Lord wants to rescue Paul, Rome can't stop it. So if Paul dies, God's still sovereign. You're okay. And then he transitions. Remember we talked about the fear of not having the apostles? Well, what what do I do then, Paul? Okay, fine. You die and God's still in control, but what do I have without your teaching, without your leadership, without your help? And Paul says, you've got enough. How? Look at verse 14. Chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from child you've been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. With the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that you, O man of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying, we've done enough, you don't need us anymore. You've got your Old Testament, you've got your apostolic letters, and it's those scriptures which are God-breathed, and they're what's equipping you for the work of ministry, not me. You don't need me, Paul, you don't need me, Timothy, you've got a Bible. That's our hope today. We don't have apostles, we don't have prophets, but we've got a Bible. This letter is filled with encouragement. He goes on to say that as he was abandoned by everyone. He says, may it not be counted against them for the Lord stood by me. He goes on to remind Timothy of his heavenly award that's awaiting everyone who loves Jesus. From beginning to end, this letter is all about Paul writing to a pastor who from the perspective of his circumstances has no fuel in the tank. He has no reason to have any hope at all. And this letter was written to him to remind him you have every reason to hope. Because here we are. And not long after Nero dies, Rome continues their persecution. And yet here we are. But then Emperor Constantine converts, and now Rome's no longer persecuting Christians. Hooray. But then Constantine basically becomes an Arian, which is a modern day, was, was their version of a Jehovah's Witness. And then he allows Jehovah's Witnesses' bishops to overtake all of the bishop roles, and the church, not long after Roman persecution has ended, has now basically been overwhelmed with Jehovah's Witnesses. It got so bad that as our early church father, Athanasius, he he penned in one of his own letters that if I'm the only one in the whole world left who believes in the Trinity, then it's Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Roman persecution ends, and now the church is flooded with false teachers. And yet here we are. And then it doesn't take long after the flood of false teachers and Arians, after they die down, it doesn't take long for Islam to be born. And Islam begins their crusades, and they're forcing Christians out of their territory. They're burning New Testament manuscripts, raging war against the Christian faith. Some of our earliest church fathers are fleeing their regions, losing their jobs, being killed. Islam is overtaking North Africa, overtaking the Middle East, driving Christianity out. And yet here we are. And then not long after that, the church apostatizes into what we now call Roman Catholicism. And for the whole medieval pages, Christians look through the the annals of history and wonder, were there any Christians at all? We had these little bits of reformation and they were put to death pretty quickly. Yet here we are. And so what goal is it? And this is how I, I will conclude. And this is, this is the point we're taking. What point then, as we remember the theme of this letter, as we remember what God has already done in history, what sense does it make for us to look around us today and fret 
Things are so bad, guys, right? I mean, America is just so secular. And, and we've gotten rid of God, and, and, and no one believes in God in America, and we're losing our Christian roots. And, and look at Islam. It's all over the Middle East, and there's no Christians. And what hope do we have? Yet, that's what we could have said time and time and time and time again. And yet, here we are. The overall message we're going to take away from 2 Timothy, the only overall thing that we're going to come back to time and time again is that our job as Christians is to trust the Lord with the future of his church. Let me just, let me just say this. Can I say this? It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. When, when we come in on a Sunday morning and, and Bill and I have to work for 30 minutes to try to get the projector to work even though we didn't do anything different, and the microphones don't work, and my guitar battery's dead, and I can't find a guitar battery, and this random dog shows up in the middle of the church, and we don't know what to do with it. We're okay. On a less trivial note, when the powers that be persecute the church, and we lose family, and we lose friends, and we see apostasy, and the world goes crazy, we're going to be okay. No matter your circumstances. You're okay. We'll conclude with Matthew chapter 16, 18. We, we sang that song, Standing on the Promises of God. Here's one of them. What's our hope? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is walking with his disciples, asking, who do people say that I am? And the culture doesn't know. They got the wrong answers. So Jesus asked them, who, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. And then there's the famous promise that he gives to Peter after that right answer in chapter 16, verse 18. Look at what he says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death, the gates of hell, whatever your translation say, the gates of death shall not prevail against it. We're standing on the promises of God. Death will never overtake his church. Secularism cannot kill the church. Muslim persecution cannot kill the church. Nero cannot kill the church. Jesus has established it, and he has promised to spread it, to grow it, to be a fortress, a bulwark, its defender, its protector. The kingdom of God has come, and it is coming, and no one and nothing can stop it. So I don't care what CNN says. And I don't care what modern day prophecy, tribulation books say. I don't care what people say about global warming. God is up to something. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. We're okay. We're just fine. So trust him. It doesn't mean trials won't come. It doesn't mean tribulations and heartaches won't come. Paul was not in a fun place when he wrote this letter. But even though he was maybe miserable and persecuted in pain and torment and sadness, he was not discouraged. Because God cannot be bound. The gospel cannot be bound. The church will be established. So what do we take away ultimately from 2 Timothy? Trust the Lord. We're still here. The church is always going to be here. We're going to be okay. God's in control. We're going to be okay.